0: Well, Josh, I think we've reached the end of the road on this science thing. Mm. We've we've covered every science topic I can think of, uh, but we've been talking about this off the air, and it's time time that we bring it to the people. We're now shifting to a uh, covering Bob's Burgers season twelve. <laughs> uh, so strap in for a four hour breakdown, episode one, first thoughts. I mean, wow. So,
1: I'm going to disappoint you. I haven't watched episode 1 yet. No. See, it's in the can.
0: I I'm the I'm the Justin of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't worry. I got plenty to plenty to talk about. Performances amazing. Yeah. Storyline great. All the kids working together. That's what you really want.
1: Yeah, I saw I saw the teasers during NFL Football Sunday, you know, cuz mm. that precedes Bob's Burgers debut and it looked really good it looked like a good episode and I I, you know I know I always like how like usually episode three or four of every season is like the Halloween episode Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's not like Simpsons you know where they uh, totally uh, undo the whole uh, you know thematic elements of the show to turn it on its head to make it a fun a fun show. They, like, stay within the show to do their Halloween yeah. episodes, and I really
0: like that. Kind of like uh, King of the Hill.
1: Yeah. Although the... I can't think of too many King of the Hill Halloween episodes off the top of my head.
0: Uh, there was definitely one where Christians were angry at something, mm. but isn't that That sounds like a theme. Like a King of the Hill theme. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with Bob's Burgers, too, I'm a big fan of the show. But they, especially in the earlier seasons, but they do this pretty often, especially on the Thanksgiving episodes. I don't like it when uh, they start hating each other. Not a fan. It's too, I don't need conflict. It's too real. It hits too close to home. <laughs> Family conflict. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why. Yeah, I should talk to my therapist. Stop, about this. Stop, stop trying to bring back these memories that I've worked so hard
1: to bury. <laughs> What's never ending to so find the beginning they came up for Like kids with the the
0: yeah i think uh, i've got pretty good thanksgiving memories Um, that's a joke. (laughs) I, I would always have to at, a we would always go to somebody else's house, like family or family friends or family friends, parents, which was Mm. quite a ways. Uh, but the first Thanksgiving in college, I was going to, or my sister was going to be with my dad that year. So, uh, I was going to go to that Thanksgiving And it was going to be at a family friend's parents' house. And I had broken my leg earlier that year and was back. I was off stilts. No, not stilts. Off uh, crutches. But I had like the That would be a
1: weird way to heal your leg. Like if you just had to walk on stilts till it was better.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They do that in Russia, I think. Um, But... uh, yeah, so I was on the boot, so I definitely was on painkillers, and I was spending the night at my, like, my best friend's house back then, uh, and it was the first time that I drank, like, actually, mm. and I remember, uh, it, it was just two of us, so, you know, party time, <laughs> playing uh, all the famous drinking games, making Dr. the bottle. Pepper shots, and... Not spin the bottle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, trying to play, like, beer pong with two people, which, you know, you can do. That's successful. That's the way it goes. That's the game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember, like, puking that night and then woke up hungover. Not really, because I don't really get hangovers, but it was, you know, you get that feel, like, dry mouth and kind of just disoriented Okay. Still drunk feeling. <laughs> and then I had I was late to the house, so then I had to show up there still smelling a reeking of alcohol <laughs> and uh eat some very dry turkey. But then but then you got that
1: uh that nice tryptophan nap and you felt better afterwards.
0: No, I don't you slept I don't through the nap. cowboy game. Yeah, well their performance was really what did it <laughs> 2009 i'm sure you remember
1: ah that sounds like it might be the one where uh rg3 roasted the cowboys in his rookie season as a quarterback for the washington uh redskins yeah that's what it sounds like i think that was that year
0: no no because he i think i went to baylor when he was still quarterback oh yeah yeah Anyways, great open. Good job. Nailed it.
1: I did like last year's Bob's Burgers Thanksgiving episode where Gene uh, got worms from eating the raw turkey and had to spend the entire Thanksgiving having diarrhea in the bathroom.
0: Yes, yeah. I forgot that was their Thanksgiving episode. I liked the Halloween one last year where they were the slug. Yeah. And they were trying to conjure the ghost. Man, such, such good ones. See, we could do four hours on it. It's this a good show. Episode. It's a good show. Good uh, voices, gotta, good
1: actors, good good last performances. Year's
0: episode three, uh, where they unionized, making the woodchucks.
1: Nothing to say. <laughs> Nothing to say. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, that's that's the other thing about this episode. We didn't have enough people sign up for our Patreon, mm. and so this episode is brought to you by the Department of Defense.
1: Yeah. We're we're about to just be we're we're gonna tell the story of how Lockheed should have just maintained its role as the interior, you know, aircraft designer for the Defense Department instead of like opening it up to these bids. <laughs> <laughs> uh there, there is there is an interesting defense story in this uh F one seventeen piece just when it comes to finances because I feel like evaluating these numbers and even when you adjust it for inflation, like this is the most spendthrift, come under budget, try to make the cheapest thing out of the highest technology that ever, ever got made. Like The the numbers that they tell you about this are when we're talking about the development of the F-117, like they're minuscule. Amounts compared to especially what we hear about like the F-35 and the development of the F-22 Raptor and even like the development of the fighters that uh, predated the stealth technology like the F-16 and the F-15 and the F 18 Hornet like those had huge front loaded development contracts that were like in the billions of dollars. And this did not have that at all, <laughs> Yeah <laughs> which makes it kind of. It's kind of a little uh, weird moment in in defense history where this, this whole project seems to have happened in a different way than anything happens now or even happened before it with how it got funded.
0: Yeah, it's definitely got a weird story. Um, but uh, I have a close contact that uh, understands flight, so I wanted to also... Share that with the people to give just an intro to the topic.
1: Yes. Yeah, I had... The reason I I loved the F-117 as a kid was partly because, you know, it got revealed when I was eight years old to the public. So, like, the kid who loved the Blue Angels and went to all the air shows that he could go to and wore flight suits to school and stuff uh, got... Uh, basically, a birthday present that the United States have been developing this super <laughs> amazing stealth technology in a plane, <laughs> and and so like you you want to like. Uh, really put a, a kid who who is already jazzed about fighter planes on steroids, like debut this thing when he's eight years old, and just <laughs> watch it, watch him jizz his pants for the first time,
0: <clears throat> just spinning from excitement. Yeah,
1: but the big question, the big thing that was so interesting about it was that it was a completely unstable aircraft, and like my favorite plane um, at the time was the F sixteen. It's still my favorite jet. You know, it's just the sexiest jet fighter jet that the United States has ever made but that was an inherently unstable aircraft even though it looked like a traditional aircraft with a traditional wing and traditional tail section and everything the wings were short enough that if it didn't have like an onboard computer fly-by-wire system it would fall out of the sky and so I was really interested in that. Because I thought that I was going to be a pilot, and I wanted to know how could you even make something fly that otherwise would just be a rock (laughs) and just just tumble out of the sky had no aerodynamics at all. So that's always interested me. And any time I've tried to wrap my head around the science of lift, and like we talked about it in the uh, physics of baseball episode when we got into like the fluid dynamics of what causes a baseball to move through the air and all of that type of stuff. So we've talked about this in general terms before, but still like a lot of it is sort of uh, like observationally, we're aware that these things happen, but it's kind of hard to really pinpoint why some of these things happen or to actually put it into a scientific understanding of this is why low pressure occurs on the top of a wing or this is why high pressure occurs. So that's why I wanted you to talk to your your lovely better half since she's an expert on these issues. Mm-hmm. So let's see what she said. I haven't listened yet. So she might I just might have set her up to tell me something that I didn't even <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Yeah.
0: She refutes everything. <laughs> so please state your name, full name please.
2: Do I need to?
0: For the record. But
2: does everyone know my name?
0: I don't know. Okay. <laughs> What's your pseudonym?
2: I can only think of... <laughs> okay.
0: That's not real. <laughs> we, we'll not use your old Skype name, but I'll just beep it oh, out. you
2: can't tell everyone my Skype name.
0: Okay, I'll beep that out too.
2: I don't want my identi- identity to get out there.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You like to remain anonymous online.
2: Exactly. I never want to be popular.
0: Yeah, so you don't want people to know that your old Twitter account was (laughs) JasonDFW. True. With an A. (laughs) Yes, I I don't
2: want anyone to know that.
0: Okay, so you have a degree in aerospace engineering, true or false? True. And do planes fly philosophically?
2: Philosophically? I... I suppose so.
0: All right, so do planes fly? Yes. How?
2: By differential pressure with the wing? What
0: what does that mean? (laughs) How? How do they,
2: yeah. Applying physics?
0: What's the combination of things you need for a plane to fly?
2: Lift and thrust.
0: Would you say that one is more important than the other?
2: Uh, I mean, just talking about flying, as long as you have thrust, you can fly. Like, rockets can fly, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. What other questions do you want me to ask?
2: I guess why I decided to take that. Major.
0: What, why did you decide to study aerospace engineering?
2: Ultimately, because I wanted to become a flight attendant. <laughs> <laughs> true story true. <laughs> I wanted to be a flight attendant and that is kind of reason why I also learned English <laughs> mean. like, mean yeah, while well, going through that I realized I really liked science and figured out that why don't I learn to be a pilot and through that I was like well if I want to fly why don't I learn about the mechanics of flying and that's how I ended up being aerospace engineering major
0: and through that you designed your own passenger plane, right?
2: Yeah, I did, yes.
0: What was the name of it?
2: Sky Marmaid. <laughs> <It's> so- <laughs> <Hey. laughs> I couldn't name it for anything. That was my senior project. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember that one was grueling, right?
2: It was a horrible, yes.
0: A lot of CAD.
2: Yeah, I think the a lot of CAD, a lot of like analysis.
0: And didn't you also launch a rocket? During college?
2: Yes, I did. Uh,
0: Anything to plug? What? Anything to promote?
2: Uh, Go EV. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. My pleasure.
2: (laughs) Why do you keep mic in front of my face? (laughs) Can't get it away.
0: So, a very technical breakdown there. Yes. I I
1: want to know how many people got into aerospace engineering cuz they wanted to be a flight
0: attendant. There's got to be a club of one, right? It's one of one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my anonymous source uh over the years has taught me a little bit about flying um I I remember like the first flight we took together. I'm pretty sure Uh, I told her, like, man, this is magic. And she was frustrated. She was like, it's not magic. And, like, explained, like, (laughs) what was going on. Uh, But suffice it to say, I think the most important thing to remember when it comes to all of these things flying is, like, often forgotten that thrust is a major component. Yeah, Without thrust, you have no lift possible so it's kind of like it's interesting especially like the scientific american article you shared originally um where they're breaking down like the science because you have the technical aspect which is strictly mathematical theory and everybody agrees on like what the the equations are what the solutions are blah 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 but the non-technical like how does it lift and how can you explain the pressure points and everything? It seems like it comes out of thin air. Yeah, it's um, emergent somehow. Yeah, yeah. But the thrust has a, it, that's a the point of like how all of those things emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of cool that, you know, as she mentioned, um, like rockets are not really designed to be, aerodynamically stable yeah they're not a wing (laughs) yeah so they've just got you know tiny uh whatevers so that it can they can control the flight pattern a little bit but Mm -hmm. uh so it's it's kind of important to remember that thrust is a key component yeah yeah you can uh,
1: pick up a rock and Mm -hmm. throw it as hard as you can, and it'll fly for a while before gravity takes over and brings it back to Earth. That's like the thrust component you added to it upon it, of the velocity, its exit velocity, just like a baseball flies, even though it has no wings and it doesn't, like, it It can't glide. I I guess that's the other thing, is like, there's a difference between flying and gliding. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to have a very specific wing cross-section and design for the shape of that airfoil to create something that just glides without any thrust, without any using of, uh, uh, of outward-powered momentum. Um, so that limits, like, gliders to how you see them being these really long-winged, very light type of things in order for them to glide. And, you know, you have... Uh, Systems like on modern big commercial airplanes where they're designed such that even if like the engines go out, they still have a little bit of a glide component to them, um, even if they're not getting the full thrust all the time. But that's why they have to have big long wings with big airfoil shape and all that type of stuff in order to maintain that type of stability. Um, mm-hmm. But when you're talking about like uh, jets or things that fly at supersonic velocity— you don't want something with like huge wing sections that's going to fly faster than the speed of sound because those wings will just get ripped right off by by the force of trying to go faster than the speed of sound. Mm-hmm. So you have to like compromise those shapes and in in doing so you inherently make the make the craft unstable for gliding purposes, but not necessarily unstable for flight if you have a constant source of thrust. So that's sort of the interesting part of it is like um, you can't just make a wing and then like set it on, set it on the ground and it'll fly. Even Mm. if the wing has all the mathematical properties of what the shape is required to create a low pressure zone and a high pressure zone and a downward angle for the air uh, to, to cause lift. Just like, you know, you can't. A helicopter can't lift if the if the rotors on the top of the helicopter aren't spinning and forcing a downward draft of the air. Um, but the shape and the mathematical accuracy of the blades all is true whether or not they're spinning or not. Mm-hmm. But the you have to the only way that those like four properties of lift come about. Um, is if you have this fifth property of thrust and that creates this feedback loop of low pressure, high pressure, drag, downward force, and lift. And those things get into a feedback cycle. um, And that's why I guess you can kind of consider it an emergent property. Once you add thrust to these shapes, then you create this feedback loop and it's an emergent property of flight. Um, mm-hmm. and n- none of them by themselves can cause flight on their own.
0: Yeah, it's like life wouldn't occur on Earth if there wasn't the energy put input from the sun. So it's it's you get emergent properties a lot of the times uh from open systems because there's a another component that's causing some sort of, you know, thrust of making these properties emerge but it's kind of cool because the the theories that we spoke about especially in the baseball episode uh it's it's very interesting that there's as you described like this catholic versus protestant kind of division where a lot of scientists will go hard for their theory and say the other one is like totally discounted yeah um
1: you got the hardcore Bernoulli guys versus the hardcore Newton guys <laughs> yeah as if they can't work as if they don't somehow you know work in
0: concert together the Bernoulli ones though it's very weird why they're so like die hard for their theory alone because the Bernoulli principle is that uh the pressure of a fluid decreases as its velocity increases. And when the velocity decreases, the pressure increases. Um, it is a little confusing uh, to think about because it's like, you know, when you put your thumb over the end of a hose, you're increasing the pressure, but the velocity is increasing as well. Mm-hmm. But the pressure within the fluid itself is decreasing. So it's like, I don't know, it's a weird relative kind of situation going on. but
1: And it's easy, like Bernoulli, especially when we talked about Bernoulli in respects to baseball, when we were really just simplifying everything down to the simplest fluid dynamics, you know, we talked about like, well, let's just assume all the air is nitrogen molecules because adding the complexity of what the air is made up of, all the different sizes of all the different atoms and components that are in the air causes, you know, the math to get much more complex and beyond like what we can just naturally adjust in our head to perceive. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking of Bernoulli, if you are like simplifying it down to like, this is a perfectly constant fluid, like it's just like a perfectly de- equally dense constant fluid that we consider air. And then, when a wing passes through, naturally there's going to be these pressure differentials when you're going, when you're passing a wing-shaped thing through this constant, um, totally uniform fluid. But uh, air is not a uniform, constant fluid. Even though you can think about it in a fluid dynamics sense—that's the best way to think about it for mathematics purposes—there is a lot of differential in the mass of different air molecules how much moisture is in that air the differential speed if the wind is blowing towards the craft versus blowing at the tail giving a tailwind behind the craft there's a lot of variables there that make Bernoulli's equation not this as intuitive as it may seem
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's a weird one and Even farther on, like, the Bernoulli principle, uh, traffic obeys fluid dynamics. And whenever you have, like, an increase in pressure, you have a decrease in uh, velocity. So it sort of, you know, makes sense. When you have more cars packed together, like, like two lanes coming into one lane then the velocity decreases. Mm-hmm. So it, it certainly sort of checks out when you can just visualize it that way. But the point of the Bernoulli principle when it comes to airfoils, which is the technical name for wings, um, is the air gets split when it hits the front of the wing. Uh, you, just imagine the wing is stationary and the air is what's moving. So it it splits kind of for the wing to go through the air, and because of the shape of the wing, where the top part is longer, like a, That's a the longer curve. distance. Yeah, yeah, the curvature of it, uh, and the bottom part kind of just barely makes the wind, it's, you know, part ways. Yeah, it's
1: essentially flat.
0: It causes the molecules above the wing to be moving faster so there's lower pressure so that's what lifts the craft and because the relative to the top the air at the underside of the wing is moving relatively slower so the pressure's higher so that also gives it buoyancy mm-hmm. um one of the big you know this theory is totally incomplete is planes can fly totally fine upside down yeah you can invert a plane
1: <laughs> which turns the airfoil upside down and yet the principle still applies that the higher pressure ends up on the bottom side of the wing which is now the top of the wing because it's inverted. <laughs> so Yeah.
0: It's weird that this one these people are so diehard like they don't really have a solution for that. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of like, "Well, okay." <laughs> but Well, yeah, cuz right if you put up. a
1: if you just put a stationary wing shape in a fluid tube and you add the dye into the fluid tube while the fluid is moving, passing over the wing shape, you can see, ooh, it's moving faster when it goes over the hump. And you can turn mm. that thing totally upside down and it'll move faster when it goes over the hump the other way, too. But that's, that's what we're talking about when you got to add the other two components and then the fifth component of... Of thrust in into this in order to understand that the direction the plane's moving and the power at which it's moving add these other two components of downward of forcing the air downward, which pushes the plane up in order to create lift, which is the Newtonian idea of this second law, Newton's second law, that you're gonna have this downward force. That is actually the thing and the force of the wind being pushed down towards the ground at the bottom of the wing is the thing that pushes the plane up in the air. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if the plane is inverted or flying right side up or if it's cutting through the air at a 90 degree angle to the ground, like the air will, as it passes through the wing, will cause a horizontal movement. As it goes on on the wing too, which could be considered lift, but it's moving in a horizontal direction because the plane is is moving perpendicular to the ground.
0: Yeah, so that's where the Newtonian principle is kind of um, sometimes referred to as like the skipping stone theory, in that just the the angle of the wing, the angle of attack, uh, the vertical, like you know pitch of the plane of the wing is what causes the air to build up uh, in pressure essentially again under the wing and that buildup of pressure is what gives its buoyancy and pushes it up but this theory totally discounts the top of the wing having anything to do with it Mm -hmm. Um, so as you're saying like the combination of these two is really what causes lift it's it's both of these working together that's why a plane can fly better when it's the right side up it's more stable it's less stable when it's inverted but it's still possible yeah Um,
1: and it's why helicopters work because you can lean in all the way to just the newtonian idea of downward force and mm -hmm. cause a thing to fly by putting a giant rotor that's just relying on the downward force aspect and it's creating that lower pressure above the propeller spinning around but you're relying on the downward force and you just consider the lower pressure aspect as like oh that's a side effect of creating downward force and but Bernoulli would say oh the downward force is a side effect of creating lower pressure on the top of the wing and that's why you kind of have to marry the two concepts together because both things are actually causing each other to happen it's not one or the other
0: yeah yeah and I found it kind of interesting, too, that the the air molecules do very tightly follow the foil shape mm-hmm. atop the wing. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because you're like, well, if it's splitting, why doesn't it just stay straight and go, you know, parallel to its then deflected course? Mm-hmm. But that would cause a vacuum to appear behind the wing which would then just suck the molecules back down. So it's also a combination when you add in higher speeds that you have a vacuum, like a micro vacuum, occurring right along the back of the wing and towards the end of it so that it's like sucking the air over the top of the wing, which is then pulling the air molecules faster yeah. across the top. So it's that's where like this emergent property theory sort of comes into play because it's without the thrust without the vacuum then those molecules aren't moving as fast uh as you know they are observed moving so it's kind of this cool i don't know it's it's weird that they figured out flight because it is just like a combination of all of these extremely you know like i don't know much about the Wright the Wright brothers um but i from what I can tell, they just kind of like did it instead of being like, well, scientifically, this is yeah, all yeah. It was a lot of it was a lot of
1: observ- observations of empirical evidence, and then trying to replicate it in in a man-made thing by observing birds and other people's attempts at making gliders and kites and, <laughs> and like, so so it was very trial and error. But that that's the other interesting thing about how you know you you go back to the The first decade of the 1900s and it's a trial and error, you know, methodology to be to to come up with flight and you advance to like 1978 and they're coming up with uh, these two prototypes, which are like scale models of what the eventual F-117 are going to be and it's basically making balsa wood <laughs> trial and error <laughs> it's the same fucking process like they haven't they even in by 1978 you know we've already sent people to the moon we have all this you know nasa computer technology we have you know full on like satellites that are now in orbit and yet we still don't really have the computer capability of even uh like modeling what a craft could possibly be because it's just too arduous a task for a computer to do. They haven't developed the supercomputer big enough or powerful enough to run those calculations. So, a lot of this is just trial and error because the computer can only do so much. So, we got to take yeah. like this limited bit of information the computer gave us and now let's just trial and error this thing to death. Yeah, and well, even it's weird how like. The concept of design development has totally changed in like 30 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, even uh, not that every scientist has to be good at everything, but they do have the note that in 1916, Einstein himself was fascinated Mm -hmm. with fluids and tried to create a more efficient airfoil, knowing that uh, apparently in his paper, he described the same forces as Bernoulli's principle without mentioning it by name. So you're kind of like, was he not giving credit? Or was he like, I thought of this, my, or he like came to that conclusion himself? I don't know. Um, but he designed a, a wing that had like an even bigger hump over the top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, being like, well, this will surely make the air molecules go faster and then it'll fly better. Um, but the pilot who then tested that wing said that it flew like a pregnant duck. So... <laughs> uh and that reminds me like the one of my dad's friends was some kind of pilot or something um but he did describe as you're describing uh the glide ratio of an f sixteen is that of a grand piano yeah like <laughs> so just you get to like a weird point where the wing shape really starts to matter
1: yeah if if the engine goes out in an f sixteen it just fall it, like it's doesn't, you know, kind of like glide out of the sky or slowly the nose pitches down. It just starts tumbling <laughs> like like uh like just like a ball would or something. Like it spins in all directions and tumbles in every way and falls straight to the earth. Like there's no uh, a slight descent path, gradual decline. <laughs> you just—if the engine dies, you eject out of that thing as fast as you can because it is just going in a direct path to the center of the planet.
0: Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no landing in the New York Harbor. No, no,
1: no. You you avoid all of the uh, the seagulls you can if you're flying an
0: F-16. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that I guess you know it brings us to more of the modern day. Them trying to come up with these planes that should not fly.
1: Yeah, because so you got to think this is a there's a little bit of a history lesson here too with uh, the global conflict of the Cold War. Um, you know, World War Two ended, and the Germans at for periods of time in the World War Two had definite air superiority, and then America entered and helped uh, Britain boost just making tons of bombers and fighters and the amount of air bases and the amount of aircraft carriers and the amount of planes and the eventual more advanced technology that American England got like halfway into the war, um, surpassed the the german air force's capabilities even though at the very end of the war like germany was actually flying fighter jets like the first fighter jets that were ever seen because america and britain were flying still you know their um prop planes and by the end of the war germany actually had fighter jets but it was just too late like they the thing was already lost. They only had a few that you know actually got into combat, but they had the designs and they were ready to use them. So of course, after that, uh, the United States and Russia and England—they all you know divide up the scientists like we've talked about on other occasions—and they start to develop their own uh, jet fighters, which. Is cool. You know, whatever. We're all going to have jets now because they're going to outmaneuver and outperform any of the fighter planes that we had in the 1940s. But two, they're going to allow for like much higher flight. We're going to get way up high in the sky. So it's much harder for these artillery guns down in the bottom on the ground that are shooting up into the sky to blow them up. Plus, we're going to be moving way faster, so it's going to be harder for any ground-based things to knock them out of the sky. And that way we can drop bombs super fast from super high altitudes, and we don't have to worry about getting shot down.
0: And that was like Russia's strength was the surface-to-air missiles. Right.
1: So, yeah. So, Russia, um, during the Cold War, they threw... Tons of their military investment into developing the most advanced radar systems in the world and the most advanced surface to air missile defense system um, that the world had ever seen. And they started uh, showcasing this technology in proxy conflicts around the globe, whether it was in Vietnam, where uh, the North Vietnamese, trained by the Russians, using Russian surface-to-air missile technology and radar technology, were able to co- totally decimate the United States Air Force flying missions over North Vietnam. Like, planes were getting shot down all the time. And it was mm-hmm. not a rate at which, if we continued into the war, they would shoot all of the planes out of the sky before we could build more of them to replace them. <clears throat> Follow that up, you have the Yom Kippur uh, War between um, Israel and um, the Arab countries, and the the Arab countries are, again, uh, backed by Russia and the Russian technology. And I forget what it is, but it's like in less than 10 days, 109 Israeli jets are shot out of the sky, Um. And that, of course, the Israeli jets are like the American jets. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yep. not like uh, they, they came up with like their own totally different crappy versions of American jets. Like they're the American jets of the time, the cutting edge American well, jets of the time. And they didn't have any money. That's when, uh, that's when America starts to go, oh crap, we need to uh, just go back to the drawing board here because if, Ever reason that we need to actually have a conflict with Russia, and they're just sort of previewing their tech right now in these proxy wars, uh, our air force is going to be completely decimated. Like we're, it's going to be almost pointless to have one. There's no such thing as air superiority anymore with the advancements that Russia had made in radar and SAM technology. Plus, the the SAMs are so accurate. Once they had a radar signal of whatever the target was, they would lock on and no plane could outperform a missile that flies at, you know, 2,500 miles an hour and is more maneuverable than than any of the fighter jets at the time. Like, you're not getting away from it once it's locked on you. You're dead. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so, you know, the United States is kind of in a pickle that uh, they've put a bunch of their money into... You know, Air Force, they put their money into planes, they put their money into bombers, they put their money into surveillance vehicles to fly over Russia and have these capabilities of like, I can drop a nuclear bomb out of a plane onto any city that you have without you knowing it before you're able to react. And Russia is basically showing that, hey, no, you can't. Um, so to maintain superiority in the air, you have to figure out a way to get around Russia's radar and surface-to-air missile technology. So at first, they the, the first answer is, well, we just got to fly high. We just got to fly so high that their missiles can't actually go that high and will stay above them. So they come up with the U-2 spy plane, which flies at like 80,000 feet. And then eventually that one of those gets shot down by uh, SAM because America underestimated the operational ceiling at which these surface-to-air missiles can, can hit. They're actually way more accurate and can shoot much higher in the atmosphere than uh, America originally thought. So the U-2 doesn't really last very long as a, as a spy plane. You come up with the SR seventy one now, a thing that can fly up at eighty to a hundred thousand feet, but now it goes really fast. It's going like Mach three. <laughs> so try try and shoot it out of the sky. You, you're going to see it. It's going to show up on your radar, but it's moving so fast. You know, try to have a ha- have a missile that's going to catch up to it. Still, it had lots. Not none of them were shot down, but it had lots of close encounters of almost getting shot out of the sky. And this is a plane that set the record for airspeed it flew from uh san francisco to washington dc in 90 minutes just just think of that distance of if you took a plane ride that was like shorter than flying from dallas to houston and you're able to do (laughs) do it from san francisco to dc like how fast that fucking jet is
0: that's three that's so ravens plus commercials
1: (laughs) there you go um so they knew that that would be cool and that the cool thing about the SR-71 is that it's like, oh man, it's so fast, but it doesn't really have any like offensive capabilities. It doesn't really have any defensive capabilities. It's like a spy plane. And if anything, it's just a thing that's like, Hey Russia, you can see us flying over your house. So, uh, because you can see us, uh, we're here. And that's kind of the only thing that it did. It's like, Hey, we're still here.
0: Um, yeah. Isn't that like, uh, the musks or, Elon and uh, Grimes named their kid that because the, the plane was like the precursor to the SR... Yeah, the whatever.
1: SR-71 had this little buddy plane that they could go into higher orbit than it. And it looks like a little bitty teardrop and it would like sit on the back of it. You know, it's kind of like the space shuttle would sit on the back of a 777. You know, when they would fly Mm -hmm. the space shuttle places, it would piggyback on the SR-71. So the SR-71 would get up to high altitude and high speed. And then this little buddy version of it would launch off the top of it and it could go even faster and higher than the SR-71 could. I think that's the one that Grimes and Elon named their kid after, the little buddy version of the SR-71.
0: But it's so funny because their reasoning for it is, uh, you know, it's... It's no weapons. It's just speed. It's just a, it's like, okay, it's a spy plane. So like, what are they going to use that information for? Come <laughs> right, on, right, right. <laughs> quit pretending to like care about people. <laughs> Surveil rich. You them. don't care about anyone.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So the, the, um, holy grail of this deal is obviously you're not going to make a plane that goes to faster and flies higher than the sr-71 or its little buddy and because otherwise you're just going to put satellites in the sky and use the satellites so you're at the limit of flying technology that is able to avoid the defense systems that the that the russians have
0: and, well, and they you'll go ahead they did try with like even more advanced designs going for even less stable aircraft in order to uh, choose maneuverability. Like the, I don't know what time frame the X-29 came out, but it's it's the weirdest looking plane and the most aerodynamically unstable aircraft ever built with forward facing wings. Like yeah, it looks swept. like the wings are, are backwards. <laughs> and the point of that is to just, be able to maneuver away from things. Like, Mm -hmm. the more stable it is, the more it's like a big boat just kind of slowly turning. The less stable it is, the faster you can, you know, whip around. Right. Um, And if you think about it,
1: if you think about the forward swept wing, all of the... Preeminent fighters in World War II, the prop plane fighters, those also had forward swept wings. It was just not nearly as pronounced as the X twenty nine had, like the Spitfire and the Mustang and uh, the different planes that the Luftwaffe flew. Like they had forward swept wing designs, and part of that is because with a prop plane the big issue that you have is you want to climb to get away from conflict or to increase your your attack angle in a dogfight and but if you're climbing you're going to stall like that's just what's going to happen the air gets thin you the thrust is not enough from your propeller and you can't move enough air over your wings fast enough in order to stay maintain lift as you're climbing so if you have a forward-swept wing, when you stall and you start to slide back down, like the plane starts to tail tail first, slide back to the earth, then now the shape of the wing is, you know, if you're flying the plane backwards, the shape of the wing is a correct, like, swallow-swept backward wing. So it prevents, it lets you control that stall. So now that is a maneuverable thing you can do in dogfights. You can intentionally fly up stall slide backwards back down on the air and still control the aircraft because of the design of the wing which is why you know the idea was if we put these swept forward wings in jets now that stall maneuver can be even more deadly because we can increase our angle of attack and we can get into these really steep maneuvers that make it impossible to like just blow things out of the sky in a traditional dogfight.
0: Interesting. Uh I would love to see one of them try that in this X29. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm a I'm a back end parker, um but that seems very complicated.
1: Yeah, to to actually let your plane stall and then just fall back to earth but control the fall in a way that you're just kind of flying backwards cuz the wings can handle it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you don't have like side mirrors to make sure you're within the line. Right. <laughs>
1: But yeah, the swept forward wing thing was a pretty cool time. I I built a lot of models as a kid. I built a model of the X twenty nine. There was another one. There was like I, it was like a um, it was like a Russian version of the F fourteen Tomcat. So the F fourteen, if you remember the F fourteen from Top Gun, it's the one where like uh, the wings fold out for when it's like taking off and landing. Um, and when you're flying at, like, supersonic flight or getting into dogfights, the wings fold in on the plane, so it makes it a triangle shape. And I th- there was a Russian plane that was like the F-14, but the wings folded out all the way past the perpendicular point, so they were front-swept wings when the wings were folded out. And then they would fold all the way back into a triangle shape when it wanted to go supersonic. But I forgot huh. what that one was called.
0: Probably something Russian. Yeah. <laughs> the so they went with maneuverability for a bit and tried to figure that out, um, but then then what happened?
1: Well, um, you couldn't beat the radar. You couldn't beat these things. Um, so the big idea brought up by DARPA um, was what if we figured out a way to make a plane that it was really tough to see on radar maybe it wouldn't be invisible to radar but we figure out the radar systems and we come up with a shape of a plane that is really tough to see so they start working on this thing and it's called have blue the project is done by uh Lockheed Skunk Works, and it, it's the the interesting part of this is the government procurement side of it. So Lockheed had for years been developing um, different planes for the government, and but they kind of had gotten into the commercial aviation sphere at, starting in like the late fifties, early sixties, and most of the company had all been devoted to that. But Lockheed. The private company Lockheed had always had a a Black Works um, sort of secret development side to it called Skunk Works, um, and that operated out of uh, California, like near Malibu. So I think it's still there. Like the you can see like the skunk, the big skunk flag above that Lockheed hangar, um, and uh, so they had been developing different aircraft there, but when DARPA came up with the idea of okay let's find what we want in this bid procurement package is we want someone to develop a a vehicle that can fly that reduces its cross-sectional uh radar show up so it doesn't bounce back these electromagnetic waves to a radar in a way that you could pick it up easily on radar and they offer it to the four major flight companies, but not Lockheed. <laughs> they offer it to uh, Grummond, Boeing, uh, General Dynamics, and I can't remember what the other one is off the top of my head. But uh, Lockheed is not included in the bid invitation. Um, but because all of these guys that work for these... Uh, you know, these aviation firms are all like good old boys who used to be in the military together and everything. Eventually, Lockheed's higher ups find out that this bid package is going around and they didn't get included. So they lobby hard to say, hey, give us a chance. We have the Skunk Works thing. We want an opportunity to do this. And... Um, it's not like uh, the government's like, oh yeah, so we gave everyone else a billion dollars to develop it. Here's your billion dollars to develop. The, the government didn't give anybody any money to develop this. Like, it was the chance to have like, I think the amount was something like ninety thousand dollars for the initial, <laughs> <laughs> the initial design phase. That's what the people were competing for. These five companies were competing for, and quickly, like three of them drop out because they just. No one has computers, no one has the design engineers capable of coming up with a shape that could fly, but that would also reduce your radar signature. So they're just like, you're kind of asking us to do something that's impossible. Cool that you guys want to do some sci-fi shit, but it's not possible. Um, and <clears throat> Lockheed is the is the one that, they have some computers, some very early primitive, like, CAD type of computers where they can run different shapes but they run into problems of basically like we can't we found a shape that would reduce cross-sectional area for radar but there's no way it's going to fly and we're we're running up against the same limitations that the other ones have that's when they come across this great paper written by a Russian back in 1962 that explains the uh the gives an equation for the exact expected bounce back of the electromagnetic magnetic wave as it's sent out from the radar device and what bounces off a surface and comes back to the radar it gives specific equations for different types of shapes different sizes of shapes to understand the cross sectional thing that the radar is bouncing out off of, and how to determine the strength of the signal of the electromagnetic wave bouncing back to it. The Russians yeah, but, developed this in 1962, and I think you read a little bit about the specific guy who did it, so I'll let you talk a little.
0: <laughs> well, he's just, it's its very interesting. Uh, his name is, I mean, they call him in English Peter, but it's P-Y-O-T-R, and Ufimstev. Um, you can spell that on your own. and he it was very interesting cuz he grew up uh in russia and then he's extremely nearsighted uh, so he like needed to move to a a school for i guess uh maybe seeing impaired people i'm not exactly they didn't describe it too much um yeah i'm sure the i'm sure school. the russians
1: probably did things like uh oh all these kids have the same genetic impairment and we'll just throw them all together in this one university type of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was more like a country, and the country is called Ukraine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they, he like, moved to Ukraine. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, his dad was sent to a gulag when he was, like, two. So maybe didn't have uh, the strongest sympathies for the USSR, but that's not really explained in any of the stuff. Like, I watched skipped around parts of like a Russian documentary on the guy. Um, And as I told you, uh, I could barely handle the combination of ballet and heavy metal music. (laughs) It was accompanying every transition scene.
1: Listen, that's, that's their culture. I'm tired of you
0: dissing their culture. Uh, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Hey, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Russians. Uh, They got great food. There's a place in Hollywood that, is very good. But the thing about Russians in the US that you it's kind of hard to tell. It's like, are you here because you didn't like the Soviet Union, or are you here because you didn't like the turn to capitalism? <laughs> or are you an ultra? Like, what's going on here? They're they're here uh, for our free health care. Yes, exactly. Uh so this guy studied things he became a mathematician and focused on some physics and he was really interested in studying electromagnetic waves he was put into the defense ministry but was under the like moscow institute for radio engineering Mm -hmm. um so keep your eye on tony (laughs) um he started to like really get interested in how electromagnetic waves work and operate In relationship to surfaces. And for whatever reason, the Ministry of Defense thought, we've got the most advanced radar. This guy's studying how radar works on things. It's of no military significance. We've already advanced it enough.
1: And of no economic significance. Interest.
0: No economic interest either. (laughs) This Um,
1: discovery is a great scientific discovery that we cannot use for any military purpose or any way to make us wealthy.
0: (laughs) It really, really came back to bite them because he received permission to publish his work publicly. So that's the thing with like the Lockheed guy that found this and translated it. It was not like espionage. Yeah, it's not it a was...
1: covert deal where we had spies go in and find the stealth secrets that the Russians were developing.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it it was totally totally public information. Uh and just as you're saying like described the exact mathematics needed to make a radar cross section like a low radar cross section material and plane and it focused itself it wasn't just talking about materials it was focused on like wing shape Mm -hmm. and describing how the angles at which you build a plane can uh, deflect radar into a different direction that's the whole point of like stealth planes is it's not that they're like not getting radar to hit them It's that the angle at which everything appears deflects the signal away from the source. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, you know, radar works by you send out a signal and then you wait for that signal to come back to you in a certain shape. And then you know that something's out there. Um, The interesting thing with like radar working this way is like stealth planes can avoid it because of their shape. But passive radar can pick up like any stealth plane yeah. because they're not waiting for their own signal to come back, but that's later, yeah, um, so yeah, the guy essentially gave away this information, um the whole country <laughs> Russia gave away <laughs>
1: Russia self owns <laughs> the themselves thing. so hard.
0: <laughs> I don't think that they like knew it was anything relating to, it. yeah, and like, but... it was kind of like you're in the radio engineering like. That's not okay. What we're gonna get a better broadcast? Yeah, and so and the like fact that it's away. like
1: uh ni- like nineteen sixty two, and you know maybe you're not thinking of a direct application, even though they've already built up this huge radar defense system, but it's not like it's oh we got to wait fifty years before someone figures out how to apply this mathematics. It's like a decade it's not like a huge amount of time goes by because no one could wrap their mind around like how we could could possibly use this information.
0: Yeah. Uh, this guy, very interestingly, um, you know, we couldn't find anything where he like got in trouble for this, uh, especially around the time, like when stealth planes in the seventies were starting to pop up. You had a lot of other problems going on in the USSR. Um, Obviously, they started opening up the country. This guy moved. He, like, started teaching at UCLA. Uh, he taught some at UC Irvine, which is, you know, right up the road from me. Um, but he's he's bounced around. He's gone back to Russia and taught there some. So it's not like this guy was uh, killed for this yeah. or anything. But what's interesting is that in the 70s, the USSR was... The figures are difficult to understand, but they were spending between 10 to 20% of their GDP on the military. And we all know how much the U.S. spends on it. The U.S. currently only spends 3.7% GDP on military. So it was like maxing out after this information got out. Um, So I think that this was probably a very, very bad decision (laughs) by Russia. If they were like, Trying to win the arms race. Because um, then it started getting developed, you know, at Lockheed and everything.
1: Well, yeah. And if your big thing is to have giant military parades where you uh, show off by driving these huge trucks that are carrying these uh, SAMs and, you know, the radar stations that are attached to them down the main thoroughfare in front of the Kremlin, like, if it's going to be tough to have a military parade if you're creating a bunch of stealth jets that you don't want the world to know about you don't <laughs> yeah. you don't like put those on a parade so that there is like something to like having a, the authoritarian desire to like flex to the rest of the world uh gets in the way of doing some of the covert things that you actually need to do to maintain a world power status
0: yeah um so the ones that were developed in or I guess at lockheed um they they essentially like within i mean I think it was like nine seven to nine months after reading that paper, a guy had already made it into a computer program that mm-hmm. they could just punch in the numbers yeah and it create. fixed
1: it the the equations that were in the in uh Peter's paper fixed all of the problems with the uh design program that they had designed on their very primitive computer for coming up with a shape but even still like the computer is very limited on its computational ability so the best shape they can come up with is a diamond and because one it, you you want to limit the amount of angles that the computer has to like, Run Because every time you add another angle to the shape, you're adding, you know, weeks to the, to the runtime for the computer to run the analysis. So once they found a simple shape that theoretically would work, they just stuck with it. They're like, okay, we found one, diamond, that one, that works. So how can we turn a diamond into a thing that flies? So they just start cutting little notches out of a traditional diamond shape three-dimensional diamond shape they start cutting little notches out of it so be like okay so this could maybe be a little bit of a wing and we'll cut a notch out here and that could be like where the cockpit is and we'll cut a notch out here and that'll be kind of the tail and you keep notching it and notching it and notching it um of course every time you cut a notch in it you have to maintain these um these triangle shaped irregular angles you don't want anything on the on the surface of the plane to end in a 90 degree angle, whether at any shape, whether that's, uh, you know, top down or side to side or any way that the any point comes together on the plane cannot be in a 90 degree angle because a 90 degree angle is the perfect reflective angle for any radar to bounce off. And that gives you away instantly. (laughs) Like, it can be just the cockpit closed at a 90-degree angle with the, with the plane, and all of a sudden, the radar can pick you up like it couldn't before. Yeah,
0: That's the other thing that, like, the Peter guy discovered is radar works not by the size of the thing, but by the angles. So you could have, you know, any size plane uh, so long as it has an angle that reflects the radar back to it, it'll be picked up Mm -hmm. easily, Uh, which is, you know, sort of counterintuitive when you think of radar, you're like, Oh, that tells you how big whatever is out there, but uh, that's not the case.
1: Yeah. So the idea was to, they developed these, these two mock-ups, these have blue mock-ups, which are about a quarter of the size, mass and uh, wingspan of the eventual F-117. But they are flyable. Like pilots got in these things to test out the stealth technology. More to test out the stealth technology and the fly-by-wire system that they took from the F-16 to put inside of it. Not necessarily to test out its dogfighting capabilities or its maneuverability and that type of stuff. It was more, we're just doing tests to see if this thing's going to pop up on radar. And they would do fun stuff where because this was a black project once the government gave it to Lockheed, like they're doing it out at area 51 out in the Nevada desert. And, um, they bring in, you know, Marines who are thinking they're going to like try to shoot, uh, other planes out of the sky with their new, um, surface to air missile radar technology that the Marines have. And, they they are told by the Lockheed developers that what is inside this new plane is this special black box that we put inside the nose that jams the radar of any of the rockets so that the rockets won't be able to lock onto it. And all the Marine guys are like, no, no way anything could jam these things. We, we're taking shit out all over the place all the time. We never, we never miss with these things. And so they, like, have a bet, <laughs> like, can you, can you lock onto this thing? And uh, the Lockheed designers are like, oh, man, okay, well, this thing's going to fly directly over our heads. It's going to start, like, 20 miles out, fly directly over our heads. You'll have all the time you want. You'll be able to see it with your naked eye. You can point the thing however you want. We're not even going to hide it from you, or we're going to tell you exactly where it's going to fly over. So you can point your radar and your missile directly at it to see if you can get locked fly straight over not one hit uh for a radar lock is ever made on this thing and the and the marines are like damn that black box technology is amazing (laughs) so so for like like the whole development stage of this the any of the other people that encounter this in the military that aren't read in on the secret level of what they're actually developing think that the united states has developed this crazy black box system that sends out these jamming signals from the nose of the plane and it jams the radars of everything all around it, even though that's not, that's just sci-fi, not anything that they developed at all, but that's what everyone <laughs> believes
0: that they're doing. Yeah. It's, uh it's weird. Cause they, they get to a point too, where they're like these tests. It's, it's weird to read up on it. Cause it's not, secretive now Mm -mm. um i mean i'm sure they have planes that are stealth that we don't know like they would have to that would be
1: well it's tough to um, keep it secret back then there's tons of uh, people in new mexico and california and arizona and nevada that report seeing mm -hmm. these black triangle wing things flying overhead in the 80s and it's like part of the big ufo phenomenon that happens in the in the early 80s in the area, especially because it's coming out of area 51 and uh, that's you know one of the reasons why the government kind of unveils it in 1989 one because the Berlin Wall came down, but two the uh you know we've <laughs> we've we've been dealing with almost a decade of uh people thinking aliens are com- are flying overhead and we can tell you now it's <laughs> yeah. not
0: yeah I learned about the Berlin Wall from Prager U kids hey they they taught it in a
1: <laughs> in a fun inviting way
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i I, list, I that was like the street fight episode I was listening to this morning. um they were breaking it down. So they have a voice actor to that plays Ronald Reagan that did not try at all to sound like Ronald Reagan <laughs> 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 um but yeah so the the stealth planes and stuff it's kind of it's crazy that they came up with this, but they sacrificed all of the stability of flight mm-hmm. for them. Like they're, they're just hunks in the sky. Um, so the fly by wire stuff that I think you were like originally kind of interested in. Yeah. Right? yeah. Cause the fly by wire
1: technology is the only thing that's keeping this thing from falling out of the sky. It's not a great pilot who just knows how to con- constantly sit there and adjust the flaps and adjust the thrust in all these micro movements, you know, Imagine how fucking stressed you'd be as a pilot trying to basically keep an a un-aerodynamic stone flying in the air. All those tiny little adjustments you'd have to be making all the time. Like, there's no way. There's just no way that you could fly it.
0: Yeah, it's—the fly-by-wire, too, I had never heard about until you mentioned it. So I thought you meant, like— they had another plane in front of them that had a wire connected to it like the <laughs> they gliders come up or with whatever. wireless
1: technology <laughs>
0: to remote yeah, control fly like, the plane. <laughs> well no i thought it meant i thought you meant like a literal wire like yeah. you know how they connect gliders to the back of things yeah uh so i was like i had no idea the f-16 flew with a, another plane <laughs> leading it, it had to have
1: a little cessna
0: pulling it along <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um but uh, to my surprise, that just meant, like, computer wires. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that the the way that they develop it is, like, the pilot does control things in the plane, but those movements are then sent to a computer that figures out all of the minute adjustments that need to occur for that movement to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, how did they develop that? Because that seems like you got to have advanced, because it they had it on the F-16, which was around... Yeah, the F-16
1: was already, and they basically took the entire system from the F-16, and th- that's why they built the balsa wood uh, full-size mock-ups of the F-117. Like, you'll see the... There's pictures of F-117s and hangers, but it looks like they're all made out of wood. That's not the way the actual, like, flying ones were made, so don't confuse those online pictures with, like, oh, my God, this thing's actually a bunch of wood underneath. Uh, no, they built these wood mock-ups because they didn't have the CAD drafting capabilities of knowing exactly how to run all the cables through oh, the plane. Okay. So they had to build like a, a big, giant, full-size model version of it and then actually take a fly-by-wire system from an F-16 and then try to run those cables to all the extents of the flaps and ailerons and everything all throughout the plane. And trial and error again with this big wood model to know okay this is going to be the wiring diagram they had to like try it out <laughs> they they the wiring diagram was not designed in a computer with like draftsmen drawing all the lines for every wire and every switch And, you know, every transistor, it was, like, figured out full scale by guys actually running wires and sitting in the cockpit of a wooden version of the plane and seeing if that stuff worked when they pressed the buttons.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Um, The other thing that's weird, too, like the initial reading on the F-17, they say, like, oh, yeah, these two, uh, you know, prototype planes had flights and both crashed. You're like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> and they were like, oh, even though they crashed, the, it was very successful. And you're like, okay, scientifically I can understand. Okay, now we learned like what makes them crash. But they had like a ton of flights in these things. Oh, like, yeah. The first one flew almost 50 times and the other one was like 70 something times. Yeah. And it was like mechanical malfunction of like something overheated and started leaking fuel or whatever. Yeah, um, the, the, Or no. Go ahead. The first one crashed because they went to land, and uh, like it pitched wrong Mm -hmm. at the last second because it's not aerodynamic, and slammed one of the landing gear, which jammed it. So like it wasn't even. I mean, I guess it was a failure of the design that it would like pitch real weird. Well, part
1: part of that was because on the nose of these and on the nose of the F one seventeen, they have these long antenna looking things that stick off the face like whiskers of a of a catfish or something and those things are the sensors that sense the airspeed the pressure differential the angle and everything of the plane and those things inform all of the fly-by-wire system so if the pilot just slightly yaws the plane one way or the other it just responds that way but it needs the intake of what the environment is around it from those sensors that are on the nose now on the early versions on the have blue versions they were worried about those things shaking so much when at takeoff and landing that the, plane, the fly-by-wire system would be confused that it was going through a bunch of turbulence in the air and then cause a bunch of malfunctions with all of the fly-by-wire controls on the plane on takeoff and landing. So they set up a way where the pilot could disengage those nose sensors on takeoff and landing, but they had to then do something to ballast the plane in the nose in order to create a more stable, natural aircraft. And so they added a bunch of lead, like a big block of lead. They weighted the nose down, which gave it enough stability that it could take off and land with a pilot controlling it without using the fly-by-wire system. But Mm -hmm. having that lead counterweight in the nose then caused the nose down eventual problem on that landing, which damaged the landing gear. So even though the pilot damaged the landing gear because the nose dropped too soon on the final flight of the 1st have half-blue plane, he was able to pull up and fly around and he just flew it until it ran out of fuel and ejected because once the landing gear was damaged, there was no way to land the plane. So they got all the information they could by flying around until the fuel was spent and then he ejected and just like they had predicted, the plane just tumbled out of the sky straight down to the ground. It didn't glide or, <laughs> you know, fall like a feather or <laughs> anything like that.
0: That guy, too, he suffered a concussion from the ejection. Mm-hmm. So then he was, like, retired from test flights. Like, one concussion knocks you out from I don't ever know. doing a test flight again?
1: Uh, they're pretty strict, you know, about pilots uh, pilots' health and awareness type of stuff. But he got so to pick. Not he to got have... to pick a successor, and that guy became uh, yeah. head, became like the head of the project or some sort of head at Lockheed eventually. That yeah. second test pilot guy. I watched a couple of interviews a head with him. In
0: Lockheed. Um. Well, at least he didn't develop CTE. <laughs> not enough.
1: Not enough hits to the head. Yeah. <clears throat> The other interesting crash story, though, is after the F-117 is operational, like, it comes online and is fully operational as, uh, as of 1981. And um, there is one that crashes in training um, in, in the Nevada desert in, I think it's 1986, before the, like, cloud is lifted and everyone knows what the program is. And by it causes a forest fire in the mountains where it crashes. And by the time the firefighters show up, the government forces, just like you hear in all the UFO stories, are already there. And there's, like, uh, Black Hawk uh, military helicopters circling the thing to prevent anyone from getting close, even, like, the firefighters, from getting close to Hmm. putting the fire out in the forest around this crash. And then the government removes all of the wreckage of the F117 replaces it with the wreck with another plane that was an old uh 1960s jet that they just had in storage at area 51 replaces the wreckage with that plane and then allows people to come in and and put out the rest of the fire and take care of the thing <laughs> so like in <laughs> very very uh very true to true to form of all those stories. Yeah, the government showed up before anyone else knew to try to cover it up. But the thing that like flies in the face of all of the uh, cover up stories about UFOs is that uh, all the firefighters like saw it happen, and it it wasn't a secret like f- f- very long. Like they did not keep this secret. It became like a public news story and was in the newspaper like the next day. <laughs> so so anytime you're trying to like. Uh, bring a whole big group of people together even if they're all government spooks like the likelihood that you're going to maintain whatever secrecy is once like all these people have to keep the secret and like a thing crashes and other people see it happen like it's not likely that you're going to be able to keep that under wraps for very long um yeah so you, you know one hey part of that part of the government response does jive with all these UFO crash stories that you hear about but two uh, they didn't really keep it a secret, and everyone knew about it. So it's yeah. kind of, you know, if an alien craft had crashed and they replaced it with, like, a Air Force craft and stuff, maybe it wouldn't have been kept secret either. I don't know.
0: No, they would have had to kill the people. <laughs> I was looking up the uh, F-17, like, falling out of the sky, and I didn't know uh, that there were multiples shot down. Um,
1: One famously shot down out of luck it's pretty much a lucky shot but they were getting closer and closer to being shot down by the time they were finally retired in 2003
0: yeah in 99 there is one shot down during the nato bombing of yugoslavia tell me you learned about that in public school hey i Um, I lived through it (laughs) yeah i lived through it don't Don't remember it at all.
1: These were all the, uh, oh, Clinton's just trying to do stuff to make us distracted from the Monica Lewinsky scandal.
0: Well, I love this uh, poster celebrating the shoot down. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever seen this? No. It says, uh, greetings from Serbia. Sorry, we didn't know it was invisible. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. It is.
1: But yeah, it's so. One of the things about this is like, it's retired. It's like flew its last any last missions in two thousand three. Like the only time you see them flying around is like air shows and stuff like that. Now it's not no longer active duty plane. Um, But two like the F twenty two the 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 planes that followed it the F twenty two and The shitty F-35, if it ever works. It won't. Um, They, if you look at them, they don't have all this crazy angular uh, panels with uh, radar-absorbing paint and all these weird uh, faceted angles all over the place to make the ship look like it's from Batman or something like that. They just look like like you've seen other planes. They look like F-15s and F-16s. They look like planes. Um, but part of the reason is that they still have the same, they still have the same mathematics that allows them to have a very low cross sectional radar uh, return but it's just we have computers now that can <laughs> run the analysis on how to make a shape <laughs> and not just be like, phew, we found a simple one, a diamond. Let's just, oh my God, these computers are going to take way too long to figure anything else out. <laughs> Let's just ro- run with this. Now we can actually make curved shapes and figure out how to facet those angles together all around the plane that maintain the almost zero cross-sectional uh, awareness to a radar system. and So that's why all of the new planes don't look like the F-17 or the B-2 anymore, even though that's what we considered stealth.
0: Why does the F-35 not fly?
1: Uh, I think it's just because there's, it has something to do with running too much of a fly-by-wire system. I know that it has issues with weather and it has issues. I don't know. It's, it feels a lot like... Um, that's, that's the other kind of interesting thing. The F117 was essentially an automated plane. Like the the pilots would turn on their ability to control the plane like when they would drop the bomb or when they would land, but other than that, it was pretty much flying itself all the time. Um and so to now recreate that same technology that you developed back in the 70s in a new plane in the 20 teens seems like it's it's either too much design analysis too many cooks in the kitchen too many parts being sourced from too many different contractors and then trying to merge all that stuff together causes too many communication errors even inside of the control systems of the plane and that's why you get all these problems of it having environmental issues when it's flying and non-responsive issues and the things that it's had um so because like the the technology the technology you're trying to input into it is not brand new shit it's just more advanced versions of the same shit that already existed for way more
0: Uh, money way more metaphor for a disintegrating empire possibly (laughs) uh well thank you for letting me learn about this um (laughs) That's all I've got.
1: Well they um, the the a couple of interesting notes still the one, they're not fighters even though they're designated F. And there's like rumors as to like uh, they wanted to get the best pilots to fly them so the only way that you get the best pilots in the Air Force to fly anything is if it's an F designation plane. but that's kind of bogus because it wasn't considered an F designation. When it was being tested, and all the best pilots want to fly stuff for Skunk Works in testing. So, if it was a Skunk Works plane, like it didn't matter if it was like uh, what it was. Like you, the best pilots are the only ones that get to fly that stuff. Um, so, I don't know if that's the re- ultimate reason it got the designation of a fighter, even though it's... What does
0: does fighter mean? It will fight other
1: planes. Yeah, yeah. It has capability for air to air combat. Mm-hmm. Um, This plane does not have any guns on it. It doesn't have any turrets on it. No uh, offensive capability of shooting uh, missiles or bullets at another thing in the sky. The only thing it can carry is two bombs and they are laser precision targeted bombs. And then it can drop those with incredible accuracy. And then part two is this is a slow ass plane. Very slow compared to even stuff that was flying over Vietnam. Um, Like This is a slow plane. Um, So you're really relying on the stealth to have any effectiveness in battle. And part two of that is because it's so slow and even if you can't see it on your radar, you don't really want to fly it in the daytime because then you can see it. Um, so mm-hmm. that's why they decide to paint it black. Like the black color does nothing for stealth. It Like the, there is like a paint that is like magnetized to help absorb um, the, the electromagnetic signal from the radar. But that paint can be any color. Like they even coat the glass of the cockpit with that stuff. So it's transparent and you can still see through it. Um, but they choose black because they ultimately decide the best time to fly these is at night on precision guided bombing missions and so one of the big last things that it was ever used for was the initial strike in Baghdad in 2003 for the second Gulf War and Baghdad even though, you know, we think of the first Gulf War as, oh, that thing was going to be over in two weeks, and Schwarzkopf just steamrolled them and it was done, and we blew up everything. Even by the time the second Gulf War rolls around, like Baghdad is essentially the best guarded uh, surface to air missile city in the world at the time. And so you're not just going to fly like, your typical F-18s and other shit to fly missions over Baghdad at the very beginning of the second Gulf War um, because they're very, they're at high threat of getting shot down. Um, So the only ones that are allowed to fly over Baghdad are the F-117s and they only do it at night. And um, their initial mission is to try to end the war on the first day by blowing up Saddam's palace on day one or on night one and, killing him and that's kind of uh the interesting thing is because you've got these interviews with all these military guys who are like top gun pilots the best pilots that america has and you know they're all jazzed about dogfights and getting out there and uh doing their combat missions but when basically they're tasked to be in a plane that is now only used for assassination they get, like, moral compunction about it. <laughs> they're like, I really don't want to say it, but basically it was an assassination mission. Ah, ah, ah it hurts me to say that America would want me to assassinate somebody, but, man.
0: <laughs> it's because you assassinate leaders, and these people revere yeah. <laughs> uh, bad leaders. I
1: guess. I don't like why. Why all of a sudden do they get a lump in the throat when they're like, but basically i was asked to assassinate someone <laughs> yeah
0: if it's a, okay? a poor 12 year old holding a ak47 no problem <laughs>
1: but if you're just flying a fucking b1 dropping massive amounts of ordnance over a city to just destroy as much infrastructure as you can and ah uh, maybe yeah. maybe a few thousand innocents die or or you have targeted drone strikes that are supposed to be targeting terrorists but you got to kill, you know, a few dozen children in the process like those are fine <laughs> But, my God, if I'm the pilot that's basically being asked to go on an assassination mission, I don't know if my country's asking me to do the right thing.
0: Yeah, they those people, those innocents died because of their government's reckless behavior. Wait, you want me to kill someone in their government? That's just uncalled
1: for. That is not how honorable wars are fought.
0: <sighs> yeah, that's that's the big thing with honor. So um, that, that was
1: my final takeaway on, uh, on the F-117, uh, an assassination vehicle that caused uh, moral conundrums amongst the pilots who flew them.
0: <laughs> Ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> uh, be sure to ask a Marine you know what they think about Nazi uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> they're the,
1: they're the best-looking uniforms. I, I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm not ashamed to say best style of any military ever in history. Okay, <laughs>
0: yeah, they—that's uh, where it starts. Um, <laughs> all right, right,
1: ma'am. Well, that's all I got. You got any 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 other farewells to
0: send to the people? Um, sign up for our Patreon, I guess.
1: Yeah. What's the deal, guys? I thought we were supposed to be rich.
0: Yeah. How come nobody emails us anymore? We got one person to email us, and now we're friends with him, Justin. <laughs> Now he's got a podcast. Look what could happen to yeah.
1: you. <laughs> yeah, send us emails at pod at gmail.com.
0: Oh, wait, here's, here's an email from Edward Eli. Uh, Good day. I desperately need your help for the release of inheritance funds abandoned. Oop, got a lot of pop-ups saying this is dangerous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's cool that they're listening to us in Nigeria, though.
0: Uh, No, this one's in Hebrew. Oh, wow. Racist. Sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, email us, uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Good job, Eric. Bye.